Good evening. Julian Assange loses another appeal. His family is in New York in his defense. Elizabeth Warren demands action from President Biden on abortion. Boris Johnson in Ukraine and Juneteenth. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Sunday, June 19th, 2022. The United Kingdom Home Secretary signed an extradition order last week to send imprisoned WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange to the United States to face trial on espionage and computer intrusion charges, where he would face a 175-year sentence. WBAI's Rebecca Miles has been following the story and files this report. The UK Home Secretary Priti Patel signed the extradition order to send WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange to the United States to face trial on Friday morning. A spokesperson for the Home Office said, quote, on 17th June, following consideration by both the Magistrates Court and High Court, the extradition of Mr. Julian Assange to the US was ordered. Mr. Assange retains the normal 14-day right to appeal. In this case, the UK courts have not found that it would be oppressive, unjust or an abuse of process to extradite Mr. Assange, nor have we found that extradition would be incompatible with his human rights, including his right to a fair trial and to freedom of expression, and that whilst in the US he will be treated appropriately, including in relation to his health. Assange's lawyer, Jen Robinson, speaking before reporters at the Foreign Press Association in London, said they would file an appeal before the High Court and the United States has 10 days after that to answer. She said the team will be raising the revelation that the CIA plotted to assassinate Julian Assange while he was in the Ecuadorian embassy and kidnap him and rendition him. Robinson said the appeal process could take from six months to a year and if necessary they will appeal to the European Court of Human Rights. In a reaction WikiLeaks said in a statement it was Priti Patel's power to do the right thing. Instead she will be forever remembered as an accomplice of the United States in its an agenda to turn investigative journalism into a criminal enterprise. Stella Assange told reporters she vowed to fight the decision. Julianet's father, John Shipton, spoke to a phalanx of reporters from Agent France Press, Associated Press and Deutsche Welt, among others. Joining him was the comedian and activist Randy Credico. UN Rapporteur on Torture, Niels Melser, wrote in his book, The Trial of Julian Assange, A Story of Persecution, the trial of Assange is not about the rule of law, but about political persecution, and that investigative and judicial institutions are being deliberately abused for that purpose. Investigative journalism is being ruthlessly criminalized, persecuted, and annihilated. Julian Assange faces up to 175 years in a US prison if convicted for publishing material about war crimes, for which he's won numerous press awards, as well as a nomination for the Nobel Peace Prize. Rebecca Miles, WBAI Pacifica Radio, New York. Thanks, Rebecca. John Shipton is Julian's father. He spoke in New York City on Friday. Free Julian Assange! 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 Australian friends find it extraordinary that the, the country that gave the world freedom of the press, enshrined in its constitution, in the First Amendment, today brought that freedom to an end. It's over. All it will take 
is a simple telephone call from Attorney General Merrick Garland to the Home Secretary in the United Kingdom to drop these charges. That's all it will take. It's not complex. The complexity only arises from the continuous persecution. It can end with a phone call. Julian Assange's brother is Gabriel Shipton. He says there are still some steps available to appeal the ruling, but if the decisions keep going against Julian, he would be extradited to the United States within a year. Well, we expected UK Home Secretary to sign off on this extradition, so it's no surprise. Julian will appeal to the High Court, so we're focused on keeping the fight going, building support for Julian, educating people about his case, so we're focused on that. What happens next? Julian has 14 days to lodge an application to appeal to the High Court in the UK, and that appeal will include uh, all the new information that's sort of been exposed, like there was a Yahoo News investigation that came out last September about CIA spying on his lawyers, on his psychologists, meetings, uh, also plans to kidnap him and assassinate him that were being made within the CIA. The plan to kidnap him even made it as far as the White House. So the appeal that is put into the High Court will include all that new information. Right, because they're saying that the United States is a civilized country. We don't do that thing to prisoners, what you're talking about. Of course not. We just have to look at other national security defendants and how they've been treated, even convicted people like Daniel Hale, who's now been kept in communications management unit with his communication to the outside world basically cut off. We just have to look at other, these other people who've been charged under the Espionage Act and how they're treated. And also these intel- the intelligence community plotted to kidnap Julian and also plotted to murder him. So this is the country that he's been extradited to, one where the security state uh, wants him dead. Boris Johnson, etc. Is that why the British courts are going the way they are? Or- the UK are complicit in Julian's persecution, essentially. They are the people who are carrying out this persecution that Julian's been suffering for the last 12 years. It's been 12 years since he's been detained one way or another. Three years in a maximum security prison, not convicted, not serving a sentence. The UK are complicit in what's going on here. They have an interest in this prosecution. Maybe I'm naive, but it seems, how can you commit espionage against a country you're not a citizen of? (laughs) Well, and that's exactly what this indictment says. You know, Julian's an Australian citizen. He's a publisher. He's a journalist. He published information not in the U.S., but outside the U.S. There's so many. I often say that this persecution of Julian's and this prosecution are just another revelation of WikiLeaks. It's not revealing war crimes, but it's a revealing the extent to which the powerful will go to hide their crimes. What institutions they will corrupt along the way, whether it's the British judiciary, whether it's the Swedish prosecuting service, whether it's the Crown prosecuting service, the FBI who gave witnesses protection, who witnesses who were pedophiles, witnesses who were fraudsters, were offered clemency in order to testify in the indictment against Julian. How's Julian doing? These times are tough for Julian with these decisions coming down. He's been in the prison for three years and it's, it's really taking its toll on him. Uh, we just sort of, as his family, we live in fear that he won't make it through this process, but he's got a lot of fight left in him, I think. Mm-hmm. Gabriel Shipton is Julian Assange's brother. Earlier, we heard from John Shipton, his father. Interesting quote to have on this Father's Day. This Sunday is Father's Day in the United States. 
In July 2010, WikiLeaks published the Afghan War Diary, one of the biggest leaks in United States military history, including evidence for war crimes and torture. Shortly afterwards, Sweden investigated WikiLeaks founder Assange for rape and a secret grand jury in the U.S. investigated him for espionage. When both Sweden and Britain refused to guarantee that Assange would not be extradited to the United States, he sought refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he stayed for the next seven years. When Ecuador finally turned him over to Britain in 2019, the United States immediately demanded his extradition and threatened him with 175 years in prison. Nils Melzer, UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, initially declined to get involved. Only when he visited Assange in prison and researched the facts did he begin to see through the deception and recognize the case for what it really was, the story of a political persecution. And in Washington... Last week, Senators Patty Murray, Democrat of Washington, chair of the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, and Elizabeth Warren, Democrat of Massachusetts, asked President Biden to immediately issue an executive order to defend Americans' reproductive rights, including their right to an abortion. Warren said this is a five-alarm fire, and Congress and the president don't have a second to waste in this moment of crisis. Today, Senator Murray and I, along with three of our colleagues, introduced a bill to ban shady data brokers from selling the most sensitive data about everyday Americans, their health and their location data. Data brokers have been caught selling cell phone-based location data for women who visit abortion clinics, risking the safety of those women and women everywhere. It is long past time to pass some basic rules of the road for this unregulated $200 billion industry that is profiting from putting human beings at risk. Congress can act and the administration can also act on its own. I have been working on the effort with Senator Murray, supported by more than 20 other Democratic senators, urging the president to issue an executive order to defend our abortion rights. There are multiple ways that the president can act on his own. He can improve access to medication abortion. He can get a reproductive freedom ombudsman at HHS. He can enforce the free choice of provider requirements that are already in the law for Medicaid beneficiaries, and that would mean Planned Parenthood would be funded everywhere. He can clarify protection in the current law for sensitive health and location data, especially given the risks that are posed by these data location selling outfits. The federal government is an employer. It can offer childcare and travel vouchers to low-income people who need to travel out of state and take off time to get abortion care. And the Department of Justice can explore the possibility of providing abortion services on federal lands. There is no time to waste. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. Warren's Health and Location Protection Act, co-sponsored by a slate of Democratic senators, including Senators Bernie Sanders and Ron Wyden, would bar data brokers from selling or transferring location data and health data. There are a few limitations, making the bill one of the most strident proposals aimed at regulating data sales. If approved, the bill would empower the Federal Trade Commission, state attorneys general, and people hurt by an unlawful data sale to sue brokers found to have violated the law. The FTC would also receive an additional $1 billion over the next decade to aid in enforcing the law. And Boris Johnson is defending the timing of his shock visit to Ukraine 
and insisted the United Kingdom will push ahead with its plans to fly illegal immigrants to Rwanda as he returned to the UK on Saturday. The prime minister pulled out of a conference in the UK on Friday to visit Kyiv for a meeting with Volodymyr Zelensky. It was Johnson's second visit to Ukraine. At a joint appearance with Zelensky, Johnson said the fault with the war lies with Russia and the UK is in it for the long haul. So we're here once again to underline that we are with you to give you the strategic endurance that you will need. And we are going to continue to help intensify the sanctions on Putin's regime. We're going to do everything we can to continue to strengthen the diplomatic coalition of support around the world uh, for Ukraine. And I completely understand and sympathize with the need for continued financial support uh, for Ukraine. We're going to work together to liberate the, uh, the grain, as you rightly say, that is being held hostage right now uh, by, by Putin, depriving people around the world of the, the food that they need. And of course, we will continue, as we have from the beginning, to provide the military equipment that you need, and now, of course, the training that may be necessary to go with that, uh, with that new equipment so that you, the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian armed forces, uh, will be able to do what I believe Ukrainians yearn to do, and that is to expel the aggressor from Ukraine. And that's the uh, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson. The United States and its allies, according to a report in the Washington Post, are making preparations for a prolonged conflict in Ukraine. As the Biden administration attempts to deny Russia victory by surging military aid to Kyiv while scrambling to ease the war's destabilizing effect on world hunger and the global economy, the Post says the decision to supply Ukraine with increasingly sophisticated arms, such as anti-ship missiles and long-range mobile artillery capable of destroying significant military assets or striking deep into Russia, reflects a growing willingness in Western capitals to risk unintended escalations with Russia. And today is Juneteenth, a federal holiday in the United States commemorating the emancipation of enslaved African-Americans. Juneteenth marks the anniversary of the announcement of General Order No. 3 by Union Army General Gordon Granger on June 19, 1865, proclaiming freedom for enslaved people in Texas. Originating in Galveston, the holiday has since been celebrated annually on June 19th in various parts of the U.S., often broadly celebrating African-American culture. The day was first recognized as a federal holiday in June 2021 when President Joe Biden signed the Juneteenth National Independence Day into law. The Juneteenth flag is a symbol of the Juneteenth holiday. After a lifetime of accuracy, Opal Lee, who was considered the grandmother of Juneteenth and is famous for having walked across the United States to bring attention, uh, walking for two and a half miles every day to mark the two and a half years after emancipation before enslaved enslaved people in Texas heard that they were free. Uh, Well, after that lifetime of advocacy, Opal Lee uh, and that 1,400-mile trek to Washington, D.C., Lee took another two and a half mile trek, this time through Fort Worth, Yesterday afternoon in blazing heat, as I said, the grandmother of Juneteenth, 95-year-old Opal Lee, says the work isn't over. She's 95 years old, I said, right? Says the work isn't over. Juneteenth is freedom, and I'm advocating that we celebrate freedom from the 19th of June to the 4th of July. She spoke at a rally after the march. 
Opal Lee, the grandmother of Juneteenth in Fort Worth, Texas. She's 95, and it was hotter than 95 degrees, I'm sure, if I remember Texas well. And New York City Mayor Eric Adams today announced that City Hall and a number of, or I should say, yes, it was today, today announced that City Hall and a number of other municipal buildings will be lit in the Pan-African flag colors of red, black, and green tonight and tomorrow evening in honor of Juneteenth. The lighting of city buildings will be done in coordination with other iconic New York City sites across the five boroughs. This year also marks the first time ever Juneteenth will be a paid holiday in New York City after Mayor Adams made the announcement earlier this year. He spoke at a uh, at an event last night about Juneteenth. Uh, he was introduced by the Reverend Herbert Daughtry, who um, is well known to WBI listeners and was one of those who uh, was a mentor to the young uh, Adams, who had been a police officer and then came to be involved in many movements to try and uh, find a solution to the killing of uh, black youth by police in the city, um, including uh, those like Clifford Glover and others who uh, launched the first real movement uh, against police brutality, uh, police killings of black young people in New York back in the 1980s and 1990s. Daughtry introduced Adams, who then had a few words of his own afterwards. So, Eric, God bless you. You know, you always in our prayers. You're always there. And I'm still, if, if you need me... <laughs> It could have been even back when Clifford Glover, the 10-year-old young child that was shot in South Jamaica, Queens, or Arthur Miller. Matter of fact, I believe it was Arthur Miller. And we were all inside a meeting. The elders were trying to tell us how to move forward. And a group of the young people were there, said, get out of the way. You're too old. You don't understand the movement. You don't know what you're doing. Build on what they've done. Stop the silliness. Like it or not, I'm the pilot. If the plane crashes, we all crash. We all crash. So if you're sitting in first class or row 79D, I got to land this plane. I got to land this plane. And so we need to stop all the madness. Don't look at what you disagree with. Look at what you agree with. Mayor Eric Adams announcing that New York City will continue and ramp up its celebration and its marking of Juneteenth, the day the enslaved people of Texas found out they had been already free for two and a half years. The president of the Carver Federal Savings Bank, which is headquartered on 125th Street in Harlem, is Michael T. Pugh. He spoke with WBAI about how important it is to try and close the wealth gap between the rich New Yorkers and the mostly people of color who make up the most of the poor people in New York and how that difference between rich and poor is contributing so much 
to the lack of growth and the problems the U.S. is uh, facing. He also spoke about the problems that uh, especially poor New Yorkers and homeowners and home buyers, people who are just trying to buy that first house to make something of themselves finally with the most important thing in American economic life, which is to own your own home, how difficult that's going to become as the president and the, uh, I shouldn't say the president, but the Federal Reserve Board, whose head is appointed by the president, has been steadily raising interest rates, which will soon be translated down to those folks who are trying to get a mortgage to buy their home. We spoke with Michael Pugh yesterday. Years ago, if you think about it, history wasn't really teaching much information about Juneteenth. And there wasn't really an an awareness of this, um, I I think, broad spread uh, throughout our nation. But we certainly have quite a bit more attention uh, on it today because I think as a nation we are uh, raising the topic and becoming much more aware that uh, it is really important for us all to, to find ways to bond in order to help heal and rebuild uh, our country after uh, so much that we, we've experienced, the social justice climate, uh, the pandemic, the economic environment that has been a bit volatile. And so I think this day is special in a lot of ways when we think about liberation and the opportunity then to truly have some sense of freedom and make choices. For an institution like Carver that was founded in 1948 when people of color were not allowed to bank at mainstream financial institutions, today, now more than 73 years later, our mission has been the same and very much uh, is in the spirit of Juneteenth, which is to focus on financial freedom and giving people choices and options to be able to grow and to achieve uh, their dreams. And I would say what we're most proud of as we step into celebrating Juneteenth is that we've been able to do some fantastic things here in greater New York City, like reinvest 80 cents of every dollar that we have on deposit in the communities that we serve. Many of those communities um, are black and brown people and have been uh, historically underserved from a banking standpoint. But Carver's here and Carver's committed to making sure that financial freedom remains a critical part of uh, our lifeline and choices to to help rebuild uh, communities impacted by the pandemic. One of those threats might be uh, the one increase after another in the prime interest rates. It's going to lead to people doubling, I've seen even more, the mortgage payments that people make. There's no question that the Fed is taking some aggressive efforts that must be done in some form or fashion to address the imminent possibility inflation continuing to rise. And we know that there are things like supply chain demand, of course, workforce shortage, and the rising cost of being able to pay for talent and resources, the rising cost of paying for supplies. We can't forget about fuel and the rising expenses there. These are all factors that are impacting communities. I think over the coming months, and certainly as we look into the rest of this year, the issue that we all have to continue to remain to be focused on is the wealth gap issue in our nation. We know that from some previous studies that 
if we address the wealth gap in our nation, we can systemically improve the overall GDP on a per capita basis, a dramatic improvement. But the wealth gap is going to be exacerbated, especially in black and brown communities, because those are usually the communities that are starting from a lower economic standpoint in terms of resources available for them to withstand the shock factor of rising interest rates. And I would also add that small businesses, we know statistically that many small businesses use their own personal credit cards to finance much of the business expenses that are needed. It's going to be important for us to continue to pay attention to how we as a nation support small businesses. They are the lifeline to innovation and health of of our nation. And they should not, they can't continue to be in a position where rising interest rates will dramatically impact their ability to keep their doors open. Credit card rates are almost usurious. It's cheaper than we broke. (laughs) Well, well said. I think that's, you know, exactly right. But, you know, I would say there are a number of programs that are out there today. We're really trying to make sure that as a community development financial institution, we educate small businesses around some of the state and federal programs that are being made available to help them get low-cost access to capital. But again, it's a real issue that we're going to have to keep our eyes on, Paul. Michael Pugh serves as president and CEO of Carver Bancorp Incorporated, a community development financial institution you can find on 125th Street in Harlem. And don't go anywhere because we are going into our talkback segment of WBAI where you, the listeners, get a chance to uh, throw your two cents into the news, into what the news has been working on and what we've been reporting on over the last week. So I hope you stay near your phones, near your radios. Remember to turn them down when you call in, though. 212-209-2877 is the call-in number. We're going to just go out with our theme and then come right back in and take your calls. And that's some of the news for Sunday, June 19th, Juneteenth, 2022. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineer is Max Schmid from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned. <laughs> 